This expert insights evening was recorded in front of a live audience on the 26th of June, 2017. The topic this month is balancing safety and freedom. On the panel we have His Honour Judge Richard Cogswell SC, President of the Mental Health Review Tribunal, Dr. Chris Ryan, Clinical Associate Professor and Consultation Liaison Psychiatrist at the University of Sydney, and our lived experience representatives, Catherine and Joanne. Um, so to start with, um, Richard, I might ask you kind of in, in a more general sense, when we're talking about providing health care to people with mental illness and this idea of balancing safety and freedom, in terms of kind of the legal structure that we have in um, New South Wales, what is the sort of spirit in which that framework approaches this idea of balancing freedom and safety? Well, the, the spirit's informed by um, varied the principles under the um, Mental Health Act. Uh, well, let me answer that in two ways. First, by referring you to um, uh, the Mental Health Act and um, the kinds of things, I'm not going to list them all, there's probably um, about 20 principles to be given effect regarding the care and treatment of people, but people should receive the best possible care and treatment in the least restrictive environment. So that's, the, that's number one, so to speak. Um, they should be provided timely and high quality treatment, um, assist people with mental illness uh, to live and work, participate, um, restriction on liberty kept to a minimum, that's a very important sort of um, principle, information about legal rights, every effort to obtain consent uh, uh, from people uh, for treatment um, and developing uh, treatment plans. And it, it says uh, information about uh, uh, their condition to be given. Um, the second part of your question is, is as I'm sitting on a, uh, a tribunal and I would sit either as a single person uh, lawyer member, seeing a person who's been scheduled in the last few weeks and I'm seeing them for the first time and they're seeing me for the first time, uh, or seeing the tribunal for the first time, or I would sit with other members, being a psychiatrist and another person, reviewing a case. And in that situation, we have information about their um, medical information about them. Uh, we have people to speak uh, from their family but also clinicians and we are very aware um, of the balance which is important between a person's rights and the principles which inform the act and on the one hand and the need uh, to for that person to receive the best care that they need in the circumstances. And so following on from that, um, Chris, in, in that equation, um, it kind of behoves us in some way to quantify risk in order to, yep, I'll, I'll hear your thoughts on that. So I'm wondering, yeah, how is that process of us understanding risk and how does that um, feed into our decision making in this context? Yeah, I mean, look, it, that's a... 
it's a good way of putting it because I think that's the way a lot of people think about this. I'm not really sure that's accurate, actually. Um, there is a... Uh, to be detained under the Mental Health Act um, in New South Wales, three things have to apply. Um, first of all, you have to have a mental illness or be mentally disordered. I'll leave that to the side for the moment. And mental illness has got its own special definition. Um, the, the second thing is that the person, uh, that you need to come to a reasonable conclusion that the person needs protection from serious harm. And that people often interpret that as trying to have to quantify risk. But actually, that will pretty much always be satisfied in anybody that I'm seriously thinking about detaining under the Mental Health Act. So, in fact, there's not a huge amount of scaling of risk there. The person will almost, by definition, if I'm, if I'm thinking about this, if anyone's thinking about this, they're going to, it's going to be reasonable for me to have drawn the conclusion that they're going to require protection from serious harm, bearing in mind that serious harm just means harm, that's serious. Uh, and that's quite broad. That includes everything from, uh, obviously, worries about them killing themselves, but it's much broader than that. It's, it's also things like uh, them being, uh, being tormented by their illness, for example, the very symptoms uh, affecting them in a, in a way that can be seen as serious harm, or them uh, needing protection from serious harm to their relationships. Not just any old harm to their relationship, but it has to be serious harm. But anyway, as you can see, it's quite broad. It's the third one that's the one that tends to be determinative, and that is that the uh, involuntary treatment represents the uh, least restrictive available uh, avenue for safe and effective care. So that's the one. The first two are almost always met when I'm thinking about this. It's the third one. Is this the least restrictive thing that we can do? That's the one where I think reasonable minds can differ and where the patient and I and the patient's family are going to have to try and work out whether there's something else that we could do. From that, Kath, I might check with you. How um, able were clinicians to um, assess your risk of harm? How effective were, at, were at they, they at doing that? Um, what was your experience? Um, I guess I've had a few experiences, some kind of awful and some much better. Um, say the better experiences were more recently with um, when I was struggling with anorexia, my GP was really good at not being um, manipulated, I guess, by what I was saying. She saw, well, she saw me and the state I was in and she was able to direct me to hospital whether I liked it or not. Um, she did kind of give me a say, said, this is where you're going, but you can do it voluntarily or I'm going to have to schedule you. And that was really difficult to hear, but I feel like she was very respectful um, and always... Uh, she always tried to reach, um, I guess, the real part of me. I feel like with my experience of mental illness, there are two very different sides of me. Um, and she always tried to get to the me that she knew had the capacity to be an adult and to be well. And so she never kind of 
punished me or um, tried to trick me. She was always, yeah, very respectful of me and what I was going through and was determined to make sure I knew she was doing it because she actually cared about me, not because she was scared of being sued or any of those kinds of things. Um, I think the unhelpful scenarios have been um, more when I was in a depressed mindset and I actually was quite honest with how I was feeling, um, but there seems to be a misconception that if somebody is being open about how they're feeling that they can't feel that bad. Um, and it's only really a problem when a person keeps it a secret. So because I said, I'm feeling really <coughs> depressed and I'm thinking about taking my own life and this is, you know, take, this is consuming my life. Um, a lot of the clinicians, psychiatrists and GPs kind of, uh, sent me home essentially because they thought I was rational enough that I wouldn't do that and that hospital wouldn't be the right place for me. But I think having respect and having that relationship where you actually can see what's going on and can step in, that, that's probably one of the most important things, that a patient isn't just, you know, a doctor's file, it's the person that you speak to and develop that relationship with so that in the case of something extreme coming up, you can work with them or with me rather than, yeah, as a patient who doesn't have a personality or... Yeah. And so, Joan, I'm, I wanted to check with you. For you, sometimes it was your safety and freedom that was in peril, not just that of your son. I'm just interested in how, how was that um, taken into account in the decisions that were made about his care? Or was it taken into account? And, you know, what difference did it make that some of the time the risks were actually to yourself? Mm. Um... Well, it took a long time. Um, my son was diagnosed with schizophrenia first off in 1998 and um, in and out of hospitals, um, voluntary, involuntary, etc. Um, it got to a point in um, 10 years ago in 2007 that uh, he committed an act of arson and unfortunately was imprisoned. <clears throat> you know, and to, to this day, I, I feel that, that was wrong. Um, because he was a sick man, he wasn't a bad man, and he did this under a, um, being in a psychotic episode. Um, I had felt very unsafe prior to this happening. Um, he had come to my place and, and I could see that he was unwell, but there was nothing I could do because I just go into this fight or flight mode. Um, and because I'm also a consumer with um, post-traumatic stress disorder, it's sort of like, you know, oh gosh. Um, it can be very frightening, extremely frightening. Um, I still get trigger points if he raises his voice, um, of which he does um, at times. Um, I have um, called the um, police on many, many occasions um, to come and take him away um, <clears throat> from my home. I had an AVO out on him, which I you know, just devastated me to do, but I needed to do it because I was absolutely terrified that he was going to uh, attack me. But it was for his safety too. Um, you know, like when I had the AVO out on him, um, he breached it five times. 
Um, I rang the police on the fifth occasion and um, they picked him up, they took him to court and the magistrate ordered a mental health review um, the following day. Um, he also took away my freedom of, you know, where I went, you know, um, I was always looking out for him on the streets or in my car. I remember one particular day I was driving home and here's my son, you know, with a bottle of whatever in his hand, absolutely blind, and I just panicked, just absolutely panicked, and I didn't go home. Um, getting back to uh, how he started his recovery, which will be three years this August, uh, he was picked up after his fifth uh, breach. Um, the magistrate, uh, when he got the report back, um, uh, ordered him into involuntary care at um, an, an APN uh, mental health unit and there he stayed for four and a half months. Um, we were told by the psychiatrist that in three you know, another three weeks and we would have lost him. Um, he's nearly 40 and um, compared from then to today is just an absolute miracle. He has now got a, um, a very good psychiatrist. He's got a wonderful case manager. He's being supported by Flourish. Um, he has just got his own home um, through Wentworth Housing. So at this point, he's doing okay. Um, as his carer, um, it, and being his mother, it, it's very difficult for me to let go, but I'm learning. So, um, and that gives me the freedom to, you know, do what I need to do and do what I would like to do. Um, so, Richard, I wanted to check with you in your work with the Mental Health Review Tribunal. What do you take into account? What helps you make those decisions about who needs to stay in mandated care, whether it's inpatient or a community set treatment order uh, versus who no longer requires that kind of treatment? How do you make that decision? Uh, it, it, it's a bit like what Chris says. Um, a lot of the time it's obvious. Um, and as a tribunal, you rely a lot upon the um, evidence from the, the clinicians, and that could comprise a, 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 a psychiatrist, a mental health nurse, maybe a social worker. Um, and some of the cases are obvious. Um, bear in mind that when we're reviewing people on a regular basis, after they've had their first review by a single member, and they say they're have to stay for four or five weeks or something. They then start a regular, until they're out, a regular review every three months for about a year. And that reviews the three panel. And the three panel is a lawyer in the middle, a psychiatrist and another person. The other person could be a person with lived experience, a psychologist, social worker, um, retired person. They're, um, but they've got qualifications and experience which they can contribute to the thing. Now, often, for example, the psychiatrist will ask questions, psychiatrist panel member will ask questions of the psychiatrist. We will talk beforehand, and if it's a, a tricky decision, uh, we will speak afterwards. So, to answer your question, very much based upon the reports and the evidence of the clinicians, plus the expertise of the panel and a, a questioning. And we also question the person. We question the patient. How are you going, Varen? What's happening? Now, 
the doctor says this. Now, what happened there? Tell us about it. Um, your mum thinks this. Uh, or your, your uncle and aunt are here. They think that. Um, what do you want to tell us? And, and often it becomes obvious, as Chris said. And just following from what you're mm. saying, um, what is the role of family in those kind of meetings? Very important. I mean, somebody said to me, and, and it, it, it's relevant to what Joanne was saying, um, always listen to the mum. So the role of the family is important in a number of ways, but two of them are informing you about... Um, they're the people who most know the patient or consumer. They're the person who mo knows them best, particularly one of the parents or both. And secondly, they can also, because they know the person, uh, give you warnings and information about them that's quite helpful. Look, uh, he's not behaving. She's not behaving the way I expected. Look, when that happened a, a few years ago, this, w this is what happened. I'm a bit worried about that. Uh, right, thank you. All right, so... Um, and also as carers, um, as, so they're a source of information, a source of advice, and sometimes a source of warning. Um, so Chris, I might come back to you. Um, Kath was talking beautifully about how her GP was still able to speak to the part of her that could make good decisions for herself. To come back to that idea of the capacity to make decisions, can you speak more to that point and how do we gauge that in people who are unwell if there still is some capacity to make good decisions for themselves? The thing that I really want to know is, I want to know two things. I want to know what does the person want to do, right, because it's, it's them, right, they're the boss essentially, um, but working in uh, psychiatry it's sometimes the case that the person's illness will affect their decision-making capacity. And in that circumstance, then perhaps I've got to take that into account as well. So, I mean, it's probably worthwhile clarifying what I mean by decision-making capacity, um, or at least how we go about assessing that. Uh, the first thing to say about that is that um, uh, if you're an adult, then I'm going to start by assuming that you've got decision-making capacity. That's that's where I'm going to start, um, and but there might be reason to doubt it, right? For example, perhaps you're saying that you want to do something and that really just sounds like a really bad idea. I would have thought everybody would think that's a bad idea. Now, people with decision-making capacity can still do things that I would disagree with, so that's not going to be sufficient, right? That's just enough to make me think, hmm, I don't know, perhaps they don't have decision-making capacity. It's certainly not going to show that they don't have decision-making capacity. That will be if they can't do one of two things, they can't understand the information and retain it relative the information that's important about that decision, or if they can't use and weigh that information. They can't, even if they understand it, they can't really take it in and, and use it to come to a decision. So if either of those things aren't there. And the sort of things I'm talking about here are perhaps somebody who's terribly depressed, say, um, and I, I think it might be a good idea for them to come into hospital and I'm worried that if they don't do that then they won't get any better. 
Um, even if they understand all of that, they might say, well, doctor, you know, I, I don't deserve to come into hospital. I, I don't deserve to get better. And in that sort of situation, I'm thinking, well, that sounds to me like the depression itself is getting in the way of your ability to be able to weigh this up. So you don't want to come into hospital because you don't think you deserve to come into hospital. Well, I actually think that's probably the illness that's influencing that decision. So I'll do my best, right, to try and give you information or give you enough support so you can come to your own decision. But at some point I might have to say, look, despite all my efforts to do that, and, and even having got your family in to try and help you with that, I don't know that you are able to make this decision and only in that circumstance really am I going to take that person's decision, uh, you know, take the, the, say to that person, look, I know that's what you want, but I'm not going to go with your decision at this time. Um, I'll just add to that too. I think that's what's so difficult in the emergency setting as opposed to the community setting or longevity of that relationship. Um, I know when I've been in an emergency room at a hospital and people have been talking to me about what's going on, <laughs> my friend was with me and he said, like, you're so smart, you could probably get this twisted so that they keep me here and let you go home. Because I was <laughs> terrified to, for them to say, you, like, we're not letting you go home, you're going to stay here, we're going to call your mum. Um, and I think that's where, yeah, the community, like the GP relationship, the psychologist relationship, the people who, who have the time to get to know the person, to follow their journey, to see the ups and downs and to have the insight where maybe I don't. I think that allows for possibly a, a healthier um, entry point into a hospital setting or into a recovery setting. Because I think there are, yeah, there are lots of misconceptions, again, about how depression shows up or how anorexia shows up or how so many things like, well, you don't seem sad, so therefore nothing's wrong or you're normal weight, so you must be fine or, you know, you've, you've got up and had a shower today, so I'm not that worried. And it's amazing the, the lengths you can go to to perform when actually... I was desperate for someone to say, like, you're not okay, are you? And what can, like, how can we actually help you? Not, I'm going to do this to you, but what do you need right now? Staying with you for a minute longer, a lot of times as clinicians, we feel really wary that if we say, you know, I'm, I'm scheduling you, I'm sending you to hospital, that that is the end of the relationship, that you will never come back to see us, that you'll be angry forever and hold a vendetta. So I'm curious with your GP, was that, were they some of the feelings, like how did it pan out for you and your GP when they were quite, gave you those firm ultimatums? I was not the nicest to her at the time, um, but I, I still see her every week. She was really worried um, when she made those steps and she, yeah, she was worried she would never see me again. Um, that either I would disappear and, you know, do what I've been threatening to do or I would end up in hospital but then cut her out of my life. And, but I'm really grateful that she was uh, 
that she was caring and compassionate enough to do the right thing despite the risk to her own um, self-esteem, I guess, her own understanding of who she was. Um, and, yeah, I mean, she, along with other people, but the fact that she did that probably saved my life, so I'm pretty, pretty happy <laughs> to, to have her around. And Joanne, you, you mentioned there was things are so much better with your son now, but there were some gruelling years there where it was really hard for you to be heard, really hard for him to get the care that you needed. What did you need at that time that wasn't available to you? What, what was it that was missing that would have made a difference, do you feel? Um, I, I believe that in looking back now, I mean, it was a, a horrendous period of time um, where my son was um, obviously unmedicated for his illness, um, using illicit drugs, and um, not being able to... He wasn't being listened to, you know, like he would... Um, he would go to the hospital because, you know, I can look back now and we've talked about this, I've talked about it with him, and he said I was in so much fear. You know, I didn't know where to go. He was in and out of a particular hospital, um, and to my mind, um, this particular hospital, um, it's sort of like a revolving door for a lot of the clients and or consumers. And um, my son was one of them. He wasn't listened to. It was like, you know, um, we will, uh, you know, you will come in and um, you will do as we tell you. And I've, ex I've witnessed this as in going into these meetings of, um, with my son, whereby he was, um, my son voiced an opinion and he was told to leave the room um, because he had an opinion. And, um, you know, that was, you know, that, that, that's extremely um, degrading to a human being, whether they be ill or not. Um, anyway, they, um, the difference between, um, you know, a competent case manager uh, who takes a vested interest in, you know, who took a vested interest or is taking a vested interest in my son now to the one he had, um, you know, going back, um, seven, eight years ago, um, is just no comparison. I mean, in this particular hospital, I fought for um, his case manager to um, have meetings with him at the clinic, at the um, community health centre. Um, that wasn't happening. Um, I would be calling the crisis, um, you know, team in the middle of the night um, because my son was ringing me, etc., etc. What do you feel the current team do better? Oh. What, what are the things they do that's better? Well, for a start, I mean, you know, it's, it, four and a half months in a, in a uh, mental health unit is quite unheard of. I mean, that's how sick he was. We came very close to losing him. Uh, he's five foot 11 and he was under 60 kilos. Um, but, you know, they, the care they took of him, you know, like he had a, a psychiatrist, he had a doctor, and they really, really did look after him. You know, they, they engaged him as a human being, as, you know, um, they spoke to him with respect. They didn't talk to him. 
you know, they engaged him in the conversation and um, he said to me afterwards that he felt, um, you know, like um, respected, respected. So, um, yeah, and, and they got him onto the right medication. Uh, he came out of that, um, Richard was talking about tribunals, you know, we went to the tribunal and yes, I'm one of these mums and, um, and also as his carer. Um, unfortunately, he had to be taken out by the police because he was taken in by the police. However, all the charges that my son was under, which was more than 14, were discharged under the Mental Health Act. Um, so that was a blessing. Joanne's is, a, is so far a good news story and it's, yeah. it's really encouraging. Yes. And I've often said, because I sit also in forensic, which is where people with mental illness or mental conditions come into contact with the criminal justice system and they've done something relatively serious or very serious and they have to go to court and they're either found not guilty by reason of their mental illness, the voice has told them to do it, or they're unfit for trial. But the, the point that we often see is that sometimes there was a breakdown in the community care, the kind of thing that you're talking about, and yours is a classic example, where he got good care in the end, yes. which has got him back on, on the right track. And what can happen and what we sometimes see is where he's continuing not to get the good care and some of those near misses that you have, uh, have had have become much more serious. Oh. And he's actually got the knife from the kitchen and, and it then becomes a homicide yeah. or, or a serious wounding yes. and he becomes forensic. Do the decisions of the Mental Health Review Tribunal have to be unanimous? No, it doesn't have to be. No. And uh, there's been one other case where um, a member dissented um, that I've been in, sorry, that I've been in. And in fact, I encourage, because my, my background's legal, I've been nine years as a judge, I'm, I'm used to appearing in court before I was a judge, I'm quite used to the idea that if you've got a bench of three or in the High Court a bench of seven, you could get a 5-2 decision or a 2-1 decision. And I also respect the integrity of my members, so I've said to them publicly, look, if you don't agree with the decision, then you, you should dissent, don't just fall in. And I've sometimes in discussing decisions with other members by email, you know, where we've reserved our decision, so to speak, I've said, look, if, if you, you, please feel free to dissent. Uh, this is part of the process because, um, I'll take a step back, after the hearing we often go into a huddle in another room and talk and, and sometimes there's a real, you know, I listen to what the psychiatrist has to say, I listen to what the other person has to say, they listen to me and I'm saying, well, the act says this, now what do you think? And so sometimes uh, um, something emerges and one of them might say, no, look, I don't come around to that. So I encourage them to. I'm not sure that too many do. It's usually unanimous, but it can be a majority. Are you aware of any reviews of the Mental Health Act itself and of the way it is understood and applied by frontline clinicians? There was a recent review or at least uh, report by one of our former members, Hal Sperling, which recommended some changes which Chris would know about uh, a couple of years ago about um, carers uh, and, and their roles. And in 
uh, including recovery in the objects. So it's being looked at in that way. The second part of your question is informing people at the coalface like registrars. and We send out information on issues at times, our registrar does, to medical superintendents at various hospitals, that this issue, that issue. And we're always open to feedback as well. Certainly, yes, there was a, quite a major review of the, the Act back, um, back from about 2013. In 2000, September 2015, the Act was changed. Um, quite significantly, actually, um, because there were changes to the, to the principles uh, that Richard was talking about before. So the actual text of the Act didn't change all that much. Um, but the principles did. And in fact, one of the things that happened was that decision-making capacity that I was talking about uh, was very much, uh, was inserted into the Act, really, for the first time. I mean, it used to be there for the ECT provisions, but it was inserted right across the Act uh, so that now it's necessary uh, that people take, make every effort that's reasonably practicable um, to uh, follow the person's consent, to assess their capacity and so on. Um, the other way, of course, that the Act is reviewed um, is when things go wrong. Um, it's, uh, I mean, and that's, there's a bunch of ways that that can be done, um, both through um, coroner's proceedings and also through negligence actions, um, and also less formal ways of doing that. Um, and in fact, one of the changes that, was, that came in in the 2015 changes uh, was very highly influenced by a coroner's finding some years before. So, and, so, and that's also had an impact on the education. So there is some sort of, you know, feedback mechanism. I think the different levels of care don't really, or haven't in my experience, had an understanding and haven't communicated effectively with each other. And I think that it's really important to have that team connection to help people. Like, I have a team now and it's kind of revolutionised the way I approach my recovery because they talk to each other and that helps me. It's not disconnected and my, my illness can't, you know, block off certain bits from certain people. It's open and that's for my benefit. Um, yeah. So, many people we see with more severe mental illnesses have multiple comorbidities. How do you work through all of this to make these important medical decisions? I think the first thing is to find out the extent of the person's predicament in its broadest fashion. Um, and you can only really do that by speaking to them, asking them questions, asking their family questions, speaking to their GP. I mean, there's really nobody that I see that I wouldn't be spending at least an hour with and then I'd be spending more time talking to their family members and to their general practitioner. Pretty much that's everybody. Um, and I don't read, I mean, I think you said before that you realise that people don't have the time. I don't, I, I don't agree with that. I think we're, this is a big decision. I'm going to make enough time. I mean, you know, yep, that's a problem that people are stacking up, but oh well, <laughs> it's, this is a very, very important decision for you, so that's, you know. Um, and then I guess um, having worked out the various problems and the way that they interact, and of course it's not only substance use and mental illness, but it's often people's 
circumstances at home or the supports that they have and things like accommodation are incredibly important. Um, how the patient uh, and their family and I can work together to begin to find some way through all of these things, taking them all into consideration, trying to set some priorities, I guess, but, but oftentimes you have to prioritise two things at once. Um, I mean, I don't think there's any quick answer to that. I think that is literally the way that that's done. Can I just, um, if I might just add to that, um, I, I, the way I've, tr I've sort of learned, and, uh, and I've done many courses in trying to sort of educate myself in regards to um, being a carer, is um, I, I don't just look at my son as my son who has an illness. It, it takes in the holistic area of his whole life, you know, like, um, you know, he's, he's been for his first interview for a job in many, many years, you know, and, you know, it, it, his eating, um, the whole area of his life, not just his illness and is he having his medication. It's a balance of, you know, um, you know, going out and just sitting by the river or something like getting some fresh air, going for a walk or, you know, it's a whole area of a person's life. It's not just, oh, well, you know, you have this illness and uh, we must treat this. Yes, that happens, but it's about, you know, well, you know, what's going on? You know, do you have any friends and do you have this and what have you? So, yeah, that, that's what I have learned and that's what I try and sort of, you know, um, help my son with and, and look at it as a, a, you know, his whole of life, not just, um, not just his illness. I just wanted to go back a step to the issue of confidentiality, if we could. Um, certainly, you know, as health professionals, it's something that we hold on to tightly, is preserving confidentiality for the people we care for. I'm interested in your perspectives about when is it okay to break confidentiality without consent? When are the times when it's okay for us to check with mum or to check with the flatmate or the GP or whoever it might be without permission? I won't breach people's confidentiality if they're competently refusing that. Um, some people lack decision-making capacity around that, but that's not so common. Um, however, um, people often get a little bit confused about what breaching confidentiality is and also... Well, there's two, so there's two things. One is first, because I, I can still have people speak to me and not breach the patient's confidentiality, right? So in the situation, you know, oftentimes the, the, the family already know they're in hospital, right? So my ringing them and saying, I just wanted to find out about your son isn't breaching the confidentiality. They already knew that. And then they can provide them with a lot of information. Sometimes people get confused about that. And they, well, I can't breach confidentiality, so I can't even listen to what the family says. That's just not true. Um, and the second thing is that I can usually, with, if somebody's competently refusing, I can usually negotiate something where it would be okay to tell me to, to have someone I could talk to because remember that if, I mean, if, it's, if it is a decision about whether somebody's going to be detained under the Mental Health Act, the most important bit again, the bit that, where the rubber hits the road, isn't the risk 
no one can do that, so just as well, um, or isn't even the need for protection, it's is there a less restrictive way, reasonably available for safe and effective care? That will usually involve somebody else. Yeah, I think recognition of the different people in the client's life. So not just, because I think when I was uh, younger, um, not living at home and I was with flatmates and various people and someone had said, can I talk to your mum, I would have said no, um, no matter what, because it was uh, complicated. Um, but had they, yeah, moved, like, can I, is there somebody, is there someone that you talk to who I can talk to? Um, and I'm <laughs> quite lucky to have a lot of uh, friends who are quite emotionally intelligent and who would have been able to kind of speak for my experience, um, but also like counsellor or someone that I was honest with who I knew knew where I was coming from. I think that would have been appropriate. Um, I think what... I think knowing that it's out of respect for me and my well-being is probably the primary. It's not like, oh, I really want to talk about you. Like, who can I talk about you with? Like, if it's because it's in an attempt to get me home or to get me better or to find out what's going to work, then that's got to be, yeah, I, I would hope that I would say yes, but that I can choose who that person is that's reached out to you, that, yeah. The whole risk of suicide is something that's talked about very widely and often the point is made that people who die by suicide have often been in front of a clinician in the week or month before their death. So there's this, um, I guess, understanding or implication that clinicians should be able to recognise the risk of suicide and somehow take action and prevent suicide. So I'm curious, um, Chris, you've been talking a lot about kind of can we or we can't assess risk. Can you talk to that point about um, suicide risk specifically in terms of our ability to recognise immediate risk and what is a good response to that? Uh, yes. So, I mean, that that's... Um, it is a common misperception that sometimes clinicians have, often clinicians don't have, but other people have, um, that there's some way of usefully dividing people into those that are at higher risk of suicide and those that are at lower risk of suicide. And I'm talking people here that present to clinicians, so people that are in the emergency department or in outpatient clinics or in an inpatient ward. Um, it, it turns out that that is not possible. Um, there is, and um, this is, we're very clear on this, there's stacks of data about it, people have done study after study after study, uh, looking for the magical ingredient or the combinations of magical ingredient which will let us realise that a certain group of people are at higher risk than this other group of people and if we can just then focus our attention on, you know, if we could focus our resources on these people, well that would be a that would be a good way of using our resources. Well, I guess that would be a good way of using our resources if that were possible, but it literally is not. It is possible using one or two things to work out whether somebody who presents 
uh, to an emergency department, say, is statistically more likely to kill themselves than other people who present to the emergency department. But everybody who presents in psychiatric crisis to an emergency department is already at such elevated risk of suicide compared to the general population that the statistical difference between the so-called high-risk group and low-risk group is meaningless. You just can't use that. It's not going to be anything that you can do anything with. Risk is not something you have to worry yourself about, except to the extent that, yes, if the person is in that sort of crisis, they are at very high risk relative to the general population. Just, just find out from the person and their family what the problem is and then set about trying to help the problem, help the person and their family with the problem. I'd say ask the question. It's the misperceptions and stereotypes are, I think, quite unhelpful. If someone asks the question, like, are you feeling suicidal? It's much easier to answer that question than for someone to say, so how are you feeling? and try and come up with words. But yeah, if someone had asked me specifically, it would have been much easier to answer that question. Occasionally people mistake what I've just said for don't even ask about suicide. Do, do ask about suicide, right? And, and the reason you ask about suicide is exactly because you want to find out about what this person's like. You want to find out what it's like to be them. And if somebody's got to the point where they're actually thinking about ending their life, that's a very important information <laughs> that tells you a lot about that person. Well, we've run out of time. Um, thank you for all your participation and thank our wonderful panel for being here with us tonight. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to Black Dog Institute on iTunes. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdog.org.au.